Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, thank you all for... uh kind of fighting through uh, that. That was the first time we've done that in this room. Um, And so the volume was a little bit of a challenge to do it in here. But uh, I am grateful um, for the the joy of getting to pray like that uh, together this evening. I want to invite and, uh, and introduce, uh, we are going to be uh, hearing tonight um, from Reverend Brooks Harwood, who is, uh, works with RUF, which is the, our, our denomination's campus ministry. He's at the University of Houston and has been there for five years, six years, fifth, fifth year. Um, Brooks is a native of Nashville and uh, uh, was an RUF intern before that at, at Vanderbilt. So um, naturally, I love him. Um, and uh, and so, but um, we got to, we have been friends since he's been able uh, to move here to Houston, and it's a joy uh, to hear from him uh, this evening. And so, um, if y'all would please make Brooks feel welcome. So thanks so much, Brooks. He's deep. All right. Y'all hear me okay? We good? All right. Um, Yeah, good to be here with y'all. If you wouldn't mind, please rise, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this scripture for us for tonight. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verse 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds... And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain uh, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Um, Yeah, like Taylor said, I'm really glad to be here. Um, One quick blurb on Taylor. I'll I'll, I'll, uh, brag on him real quick. Hey, Um, I'll just say, uh, my wife and I, before we came uh, to Houston, we, we did this quick interview over Zoom. I didn't know what Zoom was before the uh, shutdown, and then everyone figured out what Zoom was, and now I hate Zoom. But anyway, we did the Zoom interview and, uh, for RUF, and uh, Taylor, uh, he, 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 we were looking at another job in Austin, and we were very confused if we were, should stay in St. Louis, where we were at that time, or move here, or go to Austin. And he actually messaged me right after the Zoom call because he was on it. He was one of the pastors on it. And he said, hey, man, 
I, you know, I just wanted to let you know that you know, I lived in Nashville. I went to Vanderbilt. I also did the REF internship like you. Uh, you know, I lived in Austin for quite a while. Now I've been in Houston. I just want to let you know, if you want to talk to me, I will be an unbiased, you know, ear for you. And uh, he was. We talked for probably like an hour after that interview. And I was this like no-name, you know, hadn't graduated from seminary guy that he may never have seen again. Uh, and he really put me at ease to be able to discern where we should go, and we came here. So he's a part of that. So I just want to say that uh, y'all have a great pastor. You have a good husband. So um, glad to be here with y'all. Uh, let, me, let me just start with a, a quick story. So when I was at Vanderbilt doing the REF internship um, years ago, a student, uh, Joseph Shields, actually, <laughs> uh, his older brother is sitting with us in the back. Um, Joseph, uh, we were at this, this student leadership uh, retreat, and we were at this lake house, and he gathers a bunch of guys and says, hey, let's go swim across the lake to this, like, log. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, like, my brain wasn't fully developed yet. I'm like, sure, I can make that. Like, I, I don't swim very well, but that's fine. It's not far. And I don't know what it is about water, but everything seems closer than it actually is. Uh, and I get about halfway there. My muscles are burning, not breathing super well. I'm like, I don't think I can make it. You know, I'm like treading water, afraid. I don't want to ask for help. I like slowly dog paddle over there, huffing and puffing. I don't want to show them that I can't do it. But I finally climb onto the log, and I'm like, oh, that was easy, you know. And they're looking at me, and so we start talking. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, I'm so glad I made it there. And as, as I'm sitting there talking to them, regaining my breath, I realize I had to swim back. I made it. Spoiler alert, right? You know, I made it. But I truly did not think I would. I mean, it was, it was scary. And I, I only share that with you because I actually think that doubts... What, what we experience when we go through doubts actually feels like that. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't want to tell anybody that I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm really struggling right now. I don't need to get help, but I need help. I don't know what to do. And so we're stuck. And, and Jesus here, interestingly enough, kind of puts the disciples in a situation where they experience doubt. And for us, I mean, I, I think doubt comes in a lot of forms. We're going to focus in on one, but I think... One of it could be considered external doubt. Uh, this is not so much doubting your own worldview or religion, but it's doubting another, right? It's doubting something that you do not currently believe. And so you kind of have either two forms of that. You either have a curious doubt. Like, I don't think it's true, but I'll at least look into it. Or you have a cynical doubt. You're like, I really don't think it's true, but I don't really care. <laughs> so then there's the, that's the external. But then we have this internal doubt. This is actually what we're going to be focusing more on with this uh, interaction that Jesus has, this is when you start doubting your own worldview, your own religion, your own faith, because you don't know what to do with it. Uh, and you don't know that you have some belief that's competing with what you currently believe. And Jesus here does some things I think are really helpful with his disciples. He gives them stability. Um, so how does Jesus deal with their doubts? How might he deal with ours? I think he exposes them he questions their source, and then he replaces them with something deeper, something more firm, something more true. So first, Jesus exposes their doubts, our doubts. What does Jesus do with Peter? You see Peter here who doubts what 
Jesus is all about, and he exposes it. Um, you know, just prior to this, this passage, we see Jesus feeding a large group of people. And they go out uh, on this boat, and Jesus goes on his own to pray, which he does quite often. Uh, and it, it's about four and a half miles away uh, from where they are. Um, or sorry, the, the, the Sea of Galilee is about four to five miles long, but they're about 600 feet off. They're kind of in the, in the middle of it right then. And it says at the fourth watch of the night, in verse 25, that they're out there. This would be about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Super late. There's a storm happening, and Jesus is walking on the sea to come to them. Um, what you notice, I think this is fascinating, they don't immediately just accept that this is happening. They're afraid. They say in verse 26, it's a ghost. They don't know what to do. That literally in Greek, this is something that shows up in a mysterious way without an explanation. They're not sitting there just kind of like blindly accepting the fact that Jesus is walking on water to them. They say, it's something we cannot explain. We don't know what this is. And Jesus, his first words at his mouth in verse 27 is, take heart. It's I. Then what does Peter do? He says, Lord, if it's you, call me out there and I'll walk to you. And he says, come on. And he starts walking. Uh, and, and in verse 30 is where it all starts to break down. Peter stops looking at Jesus. He starts looking at the wind and he starts to sink. He's, and he says, save me. Jesus immediately pulls his hand out and says, oh, you have little faith. Why'd you doubt? Why'd you doubt me? He lets him get in a situation where he exposes his doubt. He, yeah. For us, the, the biggest thing, that our biggest problem with doubts is that we do not want them exposed. We don't want to let them out. And that's precisely what he does. The only way to deal with doubt is when they're named. They do nothing when they're not named. The only way to deal with them is when you actually tell people about them. Peter doesn't keep this to himself. This is very public. Right? He verbalizes it. If you are who I think you are, call me out there. He, in some sense, he's respectfully asking Jesus to prove himself. Show me who you are. And then he doesn't just sit there. He names his uncertainties publicly in front of his friends, in front of Jesus, and all of this that's going on. And then when he actually starts doubting him, he asks for help again. He goes, Jesus, save me. Get me out of this. This is all very, very, very public in front of his friends. He names them. And our biggest problem is that we don't. We don't want to. Like our biggest issue really isn't that we have doubts, is that we don't want to tell anyone around us when we have them. I mean, some of us, we grew up in households where it was a no-no to even have a doubt about anything. You maybe grew up in a religious context as well, where it's actually very, very bad to have any doubt at all. You need to have conviction with zero doubt. You think, what do people think of me? What, what if they don't have answers to my questions? What if um, what I think changes everything? And so we don't share. But they don't die until they're named. They just stay. When I was at Vanderbilt, actually, about that first year of my internship, this is my first year out of college. I got married, started a new job, started a job in ministry. Uh, I had been a Christian for about four years. I wasn't raised in the church. And it was right then, right at that moment, where I started doubting everything. Uh, I, I, the short of it is that I basically just had a lot of questions without answers at that time. 
Uh, and it was almost like they, they hit me um, together. It was just like a billion of them, right? Like what about uh, science and Christianity? Where did the Bible come from? What about the problem of evil? How can God be good and there's evil in the world? Uh, and these, these were things that I had looked at, thought about, talked about, but not that deeply. And then all of a sudden they just crushed me. And I, I just remember going to a large group, our, our worship gathering, uh, one Wednesday night. And this sweet uh, student named Isaiah comes up to me, helped set up uh, music equipment. He goes, hey man, how you doing? And I was like, should I tell him how I'm really doing? Like, I'm supposed to be the ministry person. I'm the intern. Like, I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about. And I just said, you know, man, I, God feels really far from me right now. And he kind of just looked at me. He was so kind. He was so helpful. Um, and that gave me a little more uh, oomph to open up to Meredith, to open up to my pastor, uh, to my friends. And a bunch of people started praying for me. And, we, and, you know, I got a lot of the answers that I was looking for on all this stuff. And actually on the other side of it, actually deepened my uh, trust in Christianity. But I always look back at that and I, I wonder, what if I never named that? What if I never said, I don't know what to do with this. I would feel like I'm drowning and I have nowhere to go with it. Like, what if there are people, we think of this interaction with, with Peter and his friends, what if there are people in your life right now that are there for the purpose of hearing your doubts? that are there for the very reason of actually helping you there. Um, and it's no accident that Peter's in this boat. Open up to them. Tell them. You know, maybe, maybe God has actually placed certain struggles and issues into your life that, that are causing some of the doubts that you have for the very purpose of getting you closer to people that you never would otherwise. I mean, a lot of times, like, we, you don't get close to someone until you actually tell them what's happening. And what if God's actually using this, even here in this moment with these disciples, to bring them together? What if there are people in your life that God's saying, I'm going to shove you into a relationship with somebody if we would just open up our mouths and say what's going on? I mean, I, my issue, your issue, is not that we have doubts. We just think... The people around us will not be there for us when we share them. They're, they're not going to stick around. They're not going to help. I mean, for me, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be like amazing, wouldn't it be wonderful if Christianity was known as a religion made up of a, of a group of people where people could name the things they really struggle with, that they doubt, and they have people meet them with compassion and maybe even answers. That'd be amazing if that's what Christians were known for. This is what's happening here. He exposes their doubts. They need to be named. But then he questions their source. This one's a little, uh, a little deeper. You see that when uh, Jesus is walking out to them uh, and Peter starts walking out to Jesus, Peter starts seeing the wind and begins to sink. It's only then that it begins to sink. He starts focusing more on his circumstances than he does on Jesus. And it changes things for him. All doubt works that way. In, in the bulletin in the front, there's a Tim Keller quote. Tim uh, Keller is a pastor in New York. He says this, All doubts 
however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. You cannot doubt belief A except from a position of faith in belief B. A more heady way of saying that on the other side of your doubt is actually a belief that's competing with that. So like for example, I doubt that the world is flat because I believe a lot of the scientific evidence that says that it's round. It's like the doubt is, is there because of a belief that's behind it. I doubt that my wife Meredith hates me because I believe her when she says she loves me and she shows it to me. Right? I doubt the fact that uh, I'm going to be very rich next year because I believe that most RUF pastors don't get a gigantic bump in their raises every year, right? You know, like, doubts that come from a belief. They're not in the absence of a belief. They're driven by a belief. And so behind every doubt that we have is actually a belief that we haven't looked at. That's why Jesus says in verse 31, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? He's not knocking him down. He's actually asking him a genuine question. Where's that doubt coming from? What's driving it? What are you believing? He's believing in the wind to have power more than Jesus does. And so I, I warn Taylor, this is going to be a little heady, and, and I want to use this as a test case uh, for how we can actually start questioning the source of our doubts, this interaction that Jesus has. So we're going to dig into it. Here's a doubt that could possibly be behind it. It might not be yours. It's probably for someone else that you know. Uh, but the doubt could be this. I do not believe that a miracle like this happened. Okay? Jesus is walking on water. Peter walks on water back to him. I don't believe that happened. I don't believe that miracles like this happen. What are the beliefs that are driving that doubt? Where does it come from? could be this. I doubt this miracle because I believe miracles are scientifically impossible. It can't happen. So number one, science actually is only the observation of things that, that happen in the world. And so what you can say is not that something is scientifically impossible. You can say that's just very improbable. This is very improbable. And secondly, this is interesting, um, Rice University actually put out in 2019 one of the largest worldwide studies on the relationship between science and faith. Uh, and they, they surveyed 20,000 scientists from France, Hong Kong, India, Italy, Taiwan, Turkey, United Kingdom, the US. Uh, they conducted all these interviews with the different people. And what they found is, is the, the, the notion that science and faith are in conflict with one another is actually a very Western idea. It only shows up pretty much in the U.S. and France. They even go, the, the, the researchers even go, far, go as far to say that it's an invention of the West because it's just not true. The majority of scientists see no conflict between, say, the miraculous and their scientific studies, what they research. Um, so I'm not saying that everything uh, that is deemed miraculous is. All I'm saying is, is maybe there's some scientific reasons to say this might have happened. Furthermore, by the way, there's a bunch of studies even done on this. I can send, I can send this to Taylor. I can send it to you if you'd like. Um, but you can look up studies on, on miracles that have happened. I'm just going to read one. In, in 2011, there was a boy who was studied. Uh, he was 16. Or for 16 years, he had an incurable stomach disease which caused him to throw up unless he had a feeding tube. Um, and what ended up happening is there's people in a church that started praying over him. Uh, and then the medical researchers that are actually looking at him said this. They said the intercessor prayed that in the name of Jesus, the boy's stomach would be healed. And he commanded the healing and in the authority and power of Jesus' name. 
He made a point of indicating that he had no power or authority to heal on his own, but only with the authority of Jesus Christ. Halfway through the prayer, the boy recalls a shock starting from his right shoulder, going down in a diagonal angle across his abdomen, and he described it as a pulsating pulsating and electrical sensation. It surprised the boy, and he reports that he also experienced some pain at the time of the shock. Despite the discomfort, they continued to pray a while longer. Uh, As of six years later, the boy still is able to eat without the tube and no vomiting. Again, I'm not saying that every claim to a miracle is. All I'm saying is that there is some research out there that suggests that this actually happens. So, you have the belief. I don't believe miracles are scientifically possible. There's reasons to maybe believe that they are. Secondly, quickly, why else would you doubt this? I doubt this miracle because I believe the Gospels just aren't reliably transmitted. They haven't been copied well. See, this is different than the science one. This is like, I just don't believe this account. I don't believe this you know, could have happened. So maybe you think there's a bunch of mistakes in them. Again, in the front of your bulletin is, is quoted Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is an atheistic New Testament scholar. He says this, I've repeatedly said that among the hundreds of thousands of differences in our manuscripts, most of them are completely unimportant, immaterial, and insignificant for nothing more than to show that scribes in the ancient world could spell no better than students can today. And he says, the oldest and best sources we have for knowing what the life of Jesus are the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not simply the the view of Christian historians who have a high opinion of the New Testament and its historical worth. It is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. Bart Ehrman doesn't think that Christianity is true, but he thinks that it has been transmitted well. Maybe you believe the Gospels are made up because someone like Matthew just did make it up. So maybe it got transmitted well, but he made it up. A couple things here. There's nothing embellished in this account. I think what's most fascinating about this that you read, it's almost boring. Nothing flashy. No one's flying around. There's not a booming voice. No one's glowing. It's, it's almost as if Matthew is just recording an unembellished eyewitness account of something that happened that he doesn't really know how to explain. It's plain. Not only is it unembellished, but it's embarrassing. If you are making this up, why would you put your key leader, Peter, the leader of the church, you would frame him in the light of someone who is doubting, afraid, and weak? You wouldn't. You'd make him the hero. He's not the hero. You know, even Jesus' critics, people that did not think he was who he said he was, even they say that he did things they can't explain. Josephus is a first century uh, Jewish historian. He called Jesus a doer of wonderful works, meaning miracles. Um, Even people that don't think that Jesus was who he said he was say that he did something they can't explain. So I'm just... Using that as as a way of saying, when you doubt something, maybe even doubt this passage right here, you have to ask, what belief is behind that that maybe I haven't examined yet? So in one sense, be encouraged. You're going to have doubts, and that's okay. You know, Um, if if Peter doubted, Peter spent three years with Jesus. He He was in seminary with Jesus, with his best friends, 
saw Jesus do things that you and I have not, and yet he doubted. He just has to process it. (laughs) So be encouraged, but be challenged. Dig. Actually see what is it that's driving this for me. And see what's on the other side of it. So that's what Jesus does. He exposes their doubts. He digs the source. Why are you doubting? And then he replaces all of that doubt with a deeper trust than they ever had before. You, you look at the very uh, end of all of this, and you have to ask, why do Peter and the rest of the disciples worship Jesus? They bow down in the boat, and they worship him. Why? It's interesting. They know this. We don't, but they do. In verse 26, it says that Jesus walks out on the sea. The Old Testament, over and over, only says that God walks on the sea. Job 9, verse 8, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? It's God. Jesus himself says to them, when it all calms down, take heart, it's I. He uses the, the, the Greek word for God's name in the Greek Old Testament. Ego eimi. He says, I'm God. When he actually, when Peter gets into the boat, all the wind stops. The, the storm stops. He has control over nature. Only God has control over nature. So Jesus is doing things that only God does and naming himself with a name that only God names. They bow down and worship him because he's saying, I'm God. It's the only thing they can do. And I just think for, for us, for them, we have to ask, who is he? I mean, like when I, uh, years ago, I, I uh, ran into some allergy issues. I didn't know I was allergic, but I am. Um, and if you've ever uh, gotten tested for that, they, they kind of prick you in a billion different ways and they kind of see what you're allergic to. Um, so we figured it out. I started getting allergy shots. Uh, I never got a bill for that. I assumed that my insurance was great and the bill never came. What I did start getting was this weird phone call that kept uh, leaving like automated voice message. It wasn't a person. It was a, it was a machine or something. And it would say, like, you know, call back quickly. We have an important matter to discuss with you. And I was like, this is dumb. I'm not going like, to look into this at all. I'm going to ignore this. I ignore, I ignore a lot of calls. But I ignore this call for, like, six months. Finally, I was like, I, I need to get off this call list. They keep leaving these automated voicemails. Let me see what they are. So I called back in to the number it gave. And they said, hello, so-and-so. Um, we actually have an outstanding, outstanding bill for you. I said, what for? And it was for this allergy test that I got. And what had happened is that the, the bill that I was supposed to get ended up, uh, they had the wrong address for it. And for some reason, they didn't email it to me. They didn't send it to me. They never called. They just relied on the mail for this. So I never saw this bill. And a creditor had bought up my uh, bill and tacked on interest onto it. I didn't even know this was like a thing that could happen. Uh, and so I owed, uh, at that time, about $700 for that bill. We did not have $700 to be able to pay for that bill. I kid you not, that very week, the parents of one of my Vanderbilt students at the time, uh, they sent us a letter. And in the letter, they just said, hey, we haven't met yet, but we just want to thank you for being there for our son. We just felt like we needed to send you something just to thank you. I hope you and your wife enjoy it. Do whatever you want to with it. And I, I promise you, it was a $700 check. My, the bill was actually like 690 
So they sent us a $700 check. I was really mad because I wanted to spend it, but I couldn't. Uh, and I paid for the bill. What if when I opened that, I said, there's no way that check's real. And I tore it up and just threw it in the trash. You'd think that's crazy. What I should do is cash the check and see. And it was real. It was real. And I think all of this comes to that. If Jesus is God, check into it. Look into it. Even if you're a Christian, like look into it. See, like dig more to see, can he possibly be this? And dig, right? Because if he is, it changes everything. If he's not, it changes nothing. You know, if, if, if he's God, it changes everything. If he's God, then even our doubts are in his sovereign control. This is good. This is good news. Peter doesn't cry out for Jesus until he needs to. Until he has something to cry out about. This, this is why Jesus put them here. This is all Jesus is doing. I mean, you might have, you might have an addiction that you deal with. You might have something in your past that you don't share. You might have depression and anxiety or just like worry all the time. You might have really been hurt and all of that is why you doubt. My question always is, if God is good, he knows exactly the, the, the right amount of doubt that needs to be in your life so that maybe you would call out to him. You would say, save me. I need you. I mean, some of the doubt you know, that we have uh, you know, about Jesus is simply that I just don't think that he would save somebody like me. I don't think he would deal with somebody like me. And, and what's amazing about Christianity from start to finish, and even what you see here and how he treats his disciples, is that Christianity is not a religion um, that says you have to work your way to God. It actually says that he worked his way to us. Peter is not saved by Jesus because he believes in Jesus perfectly. Peter is saved by Jesus because he needs saving. You know, we all, we have sins, we have issues, we have things that we wouldn't want to tell anybody in this room right now. And that's why the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't come down here to die for us because we stopped being sinners. He came down here to die for us because we still are. We have sin, we have doubts. Peter doesn't stop doubting, and then that's why Jesus moves in. He moves in because he's doubting. And this is the gracious invitation for us all, whether we're Christians or not. You can. You can doubt. But dig. See where they're coming from and see maybe if on the other side of this, there's a deeper trust in this person, in this one who claimed that he's God, come here for you. If that's true, it changes everything. Pray with me. Lord, I, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, time to gather. And I just pray simply that you would meet us in our doubts. And you would meet us in our difficulties um, because we have them and we need you. So we invite you now to work in the name of Jesus. Amen.